Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Lupul. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So, uh, today I want to continue looking at the work Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville, written in the 1830s about American culture and government. Probably going to do two more, so today and, and one other. Today I want to take a look at uh, relationship between blacks and whites in uh, what he saw in the 1830s there and the existence of slavery and how he uh, thought about um, how it might end and what uh, would result from it ending. But first, uh, related to that, our culture is, is often uh, denigrated because of its history of, of slavery. And uh, certainly there's right, there's right criticisms because of what we've done in the past as a culture. But um, I think a lot of people don't realize how pernicious slavery is throughout the entire world and throughout human history. And I do believe that Christianity, the gospel, set the foundation for the ending of all kinds of slavery. There are different varieties of slavery. Some of it is based on ethnicity, skin color, and race. Some of it's based on class. Some of it's based on simply conquering another nation, another uh, empire, or another country. And some of it is based on tribes. So even even related tribes um, have animosity toward one another, even though they look very similar to an outside eye but they hate each other, and they would destroy each other if they could. So what I want to do is is spend a little bit more time on a passage of the day, because really what I want to do is look at the book of Philemon in the New Testament. Now, it's very, very short. It's really just a a letter, if you will. But I think it's powerful, and I think it sets the foundation for the abolishment of all forms of slavery. So that'll be our passage of the day, and let me go ahead and read that. And as I do, I'm going to stop and comment on on aspects of the letter. So, the letter of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, pause. So this is Paul, he's a prisoner, he's in jail already, and he's writing this uh, from both himself and Timothy, greeting Philemon. So Philemon knows about Paul, knows about Timothy, uh, knows about Aphia and Archippus, uh, and Paul is also greeting those that are meeting in Philemon's house, to the, in the church in your house. So Philemon is hosting uh, a, a gathering of God's people, um, as a church. And Paul is very, very aware of this and, of course, is, is very thankful for that. So let's see what he continues now in verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Okay, so Paul's there. It seems like uh, Philemon is doing good work uh, in the Lord. 
his faith that he's that he has, his love that he has toward Jesus and toward his fellow believers. And Paul sees this, and Paul is very thankful to God for it. God is working through uh, Philemon, and Paul is very joyful at what he's hearing about Philemon and his faithfulness and how other people have been refreshed by Philemon's uh, love, generosity, comfort, his faith working out as a Christian. So let's see what Paul says next. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Monesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So let's pause there. So he says he could command him, as an apostle, Paul has the authority to command Philemon to do something, but he wants to appeal to him on his conscience, out of love. And he's appealing to him on behalf of Onesimus. Now, that word is a name of a slave. And that word simply means useful, or one who is useful. And that's kind of a play on words that he's saying. He says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So it seems like this Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. He had uh, either run away, more than likely he had run away, or maybe he had done some work, but then decided not to come home, not to come back to Philemon, his master. And he came across Paul, so maybe he uh, was sent on an errand to Paul, and then when he got there, he decided he wasn't going to go back. But either way, Paul is making it clear that he was useless. So in some sense, he was disobedient and rebellious to the master, to Philemon. But now he is useful because something has changed. And I do think it's because Onesimus became a Christian. And Paul even says, I appeal to you, my child, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And Paul uses that language of spiritual father, spiritual children uh, regarding conversion, salvation. So Paul was imprisoned, met Onesimus, and Onesimus was not a Christian at this time, but somehow, maybe through uh, Paul sharing the gospel with him or hearing it through others uh, nearby, near Paul, um, Onesimus becomes a Christian. And it, it seems like Paul has a direct role to play in that. He was the, the means by which God save Onesimus because he claims Onesimus as his son in the faith, and he is a father to Onesimus. So so we see a change there. There was rebellion, Onesimus was not a Christian, and now has become a Christian under the discipleship of the Apostle Paul. So here's what he says now, uh, Paul says in verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, 
especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. So maybe he had run away and didn't really want to go back. Um, Paul says he would really like to keep him with him. So Paul finds Onesimus very useful, uh, both as a brother in the Lord now, now that he's become a Christian, and as a, a worker. But he wants to do things with Philemon's consent because the the issue of slavery is still there. Onesimus is still Philemon's servant or slave. Okay, Philemon is still the master. And even though Paul could command him to do something, he's appealing to him on conscience as a Christian. And now that Onesimus is a fellow believer, uh, that Philemon should treat him uh, not as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a brother in Christ. Okay, so there's a change now in the relationship, and Paul's trying to appeal to that in Philemon, that, you know, now Onesimus is going to be a, a very good servant. He's coming back to you out of obedience, okay? Uh, he was parted from you, but now he's going back, and Paul really wants Philemon to welcome him as a brother in the Lord. And so this sets the stage for, I think, the end of the slave-master relationship. That now that Philemon and Onesimus are united uh, in the Lord, he even says, uh, both in the flesh and in the Lord, they're going to be united in faith. So this sets the stage for treating someone as a brother in the Lord and for the eventual ending of that barrier of slave and master. So here's what Paul says now in verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So here we do see a glimpse that maybe when Esimus had done something even worse, that maybe he had stolen something from Philemon or you know, did something um, that would materially hurt his master, okay? And Paul says, all right, I take responsibility for him. He came to me, or we our, our paths crossed, so he's my son in the Lord. I take responsibility for him. Anything that he's done wrong, uh, charge it to my account. It's mine. And treat him now. Forgive him and treat him as you would a brother in the Lord. He, he was previously useless to you. He had done something wrong to you. But now he's coming to you in faith and repentance. Now he's useful to you because he's, he's a Christian now. So here's what Paul then says. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ." Okay, so Paul there is saying, you know, by the way, Philemon, you also owe me. Um, maybe in that sense, Philemon is a, is a son in the faith, and that Paul led him to the Lord. And the benefit that he wants is a refreshing of his heart in Christ. He really wants to see uh, Philemon do the right thing as a Christian and treat Onesimus as a brother in the Lord as well. And he then says this, Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. 
Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul is confident that Philemon is going to do what Paul asked, and even more than that. And, and Paul wants to be there. He wants to see Philemon. He's not angry at him. He's appealing to him as a brother in the Lord. Uh, the relationship has changed between Onesimus and Philemon. Uh, so legally, it's still a slave-master relationship, but spiritually, it's brothers in Christ. And so uh, I think we see here a perfect balance of what God wants to accomplish and how he goes about accomplishing it. The scriptures are not telling us to go uh, wage rebellion uh, and violently end slavery. He is, God is using the scriptures through his spirit, through the spirit of the Lord to change people's hearts so that on their own accord, their relationship will change and slavery will end. Okay, and that doesn't necessarily mean that Onesimus is just going to go off on his own, but he might just become a paid servant, no longer a slave, but just a regular uh, paid worker for Philemon, and they can be in business together uh, as a as a employer employee relationship, and uh, be treated as uh, brothers in the Lord. So I, I think that we see the beauty there in that passage. Now, that's our passage of the day, and I spent a little bit more time today looking at that because I want to spend the last half of this podcast looking at the issue of slavery and how Alexis de Tocqueville saw it uh, in the 1830s. All right, so now I'm looking at his chapter. There's a chapter that Tocqueville writes called Three Races of the United States. He does look at the European race, the Native Americans, and the blacks or African Americans. I want to focus on the relationship between the blacks and the whites in the 1830s. Now, he does talk about how formidable the issue of slavery is. It's it's a formidable evil, okay? Um, and here's what he says. He says, Men generally need to make great and constant efforts to create lasting evils, but there is one evil that enters into the world furtively or easily. At first, you barely notice it, amid the usual abuse of power. It begins with an individual whose name is not preserved by history. It is deposited like an accursed seed at some point in the soil. It then feeds on itself, spreads effortlessly, and grows naturally with the society that received it. This evil is slavery. Okay, so that's that's Tocqueville right out of the gate here on the relationship between the blacks and the whites in, in the United States and this overall concept of slavery. And here's what he says next. Christianity had destroyed servitude. The Christians of the 16th century reestablished it, but they never allowed it in their social system other than as an exception, and they took care to restrict it to a single one of the human races. They therefore gave humanity a wound not as extensive, but infinitely more difficult to heal. Now, what's he saying there? Well, he's saying Christianity had destroyed slavery. It did. But some people who would call themselves Christians Uh, in the 16th century, brought it back. And they targeted a particular group of people, namely Africans, all right? And that is, for the most part, true. Uh, Slavery had been abolished for quite some time, for over a thousand years. Slavery did not really exist uh, in the Christian world 
You don't hear much about it in the medieval period. Uh, It does exist in some senses, usually for people to pay their debts, more of indentured servitude, which, by the way, is a biblical concept. It's it's okay for someone who owes a lot of money to, uh, if they have no other choice, to kind of sell their labor, but they still have rights. They're not they're not property. That person is not a like a, like a chair or something like that. The person is simply working off their debt that they owe to somebody else. Um, that is not a problem. Uh, biblically speaking, as long as you follow the rules as far as how you treat someone who owes you money and is working it off. But what he's talking about here is a particular nefarious form of slavery that's based on where people come from and what they look like. It's not really about paying off debt or anything like that. That's that's kind of where uh, Tocqueville begins here. He then goes on to talk about how even after slavery in, in many states in parts of the world, has been abolished, like in England, it's already been abolished, he says the issue of prejudice still has to be destroyed, okay? And I think this is because bad ideas are creeping into uh, the minds of, of people. And part of this is due to the Enlightenment, which we call the Enlightenment, but it's not really, it's more of a, it's more of a starting to abandon God's Word, and especially with the uh, writings of, of Charles Darwin and, and others before him regarding um, evolution or, you know, racism, the seeds of racism are now, which are not at all biblical, they're evil, and they come from outside of Scripture. Uh, it's, a, it's a worldly way of thinking. But Tocqueville now says that those mindsets have to be defeated. He says uh, here, uh, quote, so after abolishing slavery, modern people still have to destroy yeah, three prejudices much more elusive and more tenacious than slavery. The prejudice of the master, the prejudice of race, and finally the prejudice of the white. So what he's talking about there, and the race and the white kind of go together. This idea of white supremacy, or this idea of that there are different races, not just one human race but that some races are more advanced than others. And then the prejudice of the master-slave mentality, like the master is in charge of all things and and dictates terms. So these mentalities have to be dealt with. And he does say that um, Christianity is the foundation for destroying those bad ideas. Okay, But he goes on to then talk about something I found very, very interesting. He does a study of different states in the United States and compares them economically. And one example he gives is between Ohio and Kentucky. All right, so here's what he says. I I think it's, it's so important. He says, the colonies were founded, a century had passed, and an extraordinary fact began to strike everyone's attention. The provinces that possessed no slaves grew in population and wealth and in well-being more rapidly than those who had them, all right? In the first, however, the inhabitant was forced to cultivate the soil himself or to hire the services of another man. In the second, he found at his disposal workers whose efforts were not paid. So there was work and expense on one side, leisure and economy on the other, but the advantage remained with the first. So he's pointing out that this different economic system a system of uh, where people are free, but you have to pay for their labor. You hire them, and people have to work, take responsibility for their own their own labor. 
That's a way better system than the one in which one group just sits back and has leisure and the other group is forced to work for no pay. Okay, And he says there's a huge difference economically in this. So here he goes on. Time continued to march. Leaving the shores of the Atlantic Ocean, the Anglo-Americans, Europeans, plunged every day further into the uninhabited areas of the West. They conquered new terrains and climates. They had to conquer obstacles of different kinds. Their races mingled. Men of the South went toward the North. Men of the North went toward the South. Among all these causes, the same fact was reproduced at each step. And in general, the colony in which there were no slaves became more populated and more prosperous than the one in which slavery was in force. So as things advanced, you began to see that slavery, so cruel to the slave, was deadly to the master. Now that's an important point that he brings up. So he's not really talking about the rights of slaves, although he does recognize those. And he'll talk about that later. He's talking about, practically and economically speaking, a culture based on slavery is actually not good for them. It's going to end up being very, very bad, even for the master. You think it's good, but it's not. And so he gives an example of Kentucky and Ohio, because Ohio is a free state, and Kentucky has slaves, and their, but their climate and, and area resources is very, very similar. He says, the state of Kentucky was founded in 1775. The state of Ohio was founded only 12 years later. Twelve years in America is more than a half century in Europe. Today, the population of Ohio exceeds that of Kentucky by 250,000 inhabitants. Oh, now that's you know quite interesting. Uh, so, so Ohio being a free state and is younger than Kentucky, okay, it was formed 12 years later, it has a higher population. He goes on to talk about the differences between the slave uh, state and the free state. Here's, here's what he says. The free worker is paid, but he works faster than the slave, and rapidity of execution is one of the great elements of economy. The white sells his help, but you buy it only when it is useful. The black has nothing to claim as the price for his services, but you are obliged to feed him all the time. He must be sustained in his old age, as in his mature years, in his unproductive childhood as during the fruitful years of his youth, during illness as in health. It is therefore only by paying that you obtain the work of these two men. The free worker receives a salary, the slave an education, food, care, clothing. The money that the master spends for the maintenance of the slave melts away little by little, and on small particulars, you hardly notice it. The salary that you give to the worker is given all at once, and it seems to enrich only the one who receives it. But in reality, the slave has cost more than the free man, and his efforts have been less productive. Okay, so that's very interesting there, as it from a purely economic perspective, doesn't matter what race you're talking about, but when you simply have an economy based on slavery, the slave only works as much as he has to, out of fear, not out of love, and not because it's going to benefit him in any way, except to avoid punishment. And then you have to provide for that slave the enti his entire life, from birth to death. Okay? But a free man is responsible for himself. And he gets paid. But he takes care of himself. And he purchases his own needs in the market. Uh, and it's overall better in that system of free exercise of goods and services and labor, rather than the use of slavery. So he goes on to say here, Christianity destroyed slavery by asserting the rights of slaves. Today, you can attack it in the name of the master. 
on this point of interest and morality are in agreement. So he's just simply pointing out here that there's actually more arguments against slavery than just the rights of slaves. That's certainly enough on its face. That's enough. But you can uh, do more than just appeal to the rights of slaves. You can appeal to simple, the way God made the world, um, a world where people are to work freely and get paid for their labor. That's a better world than a world of slavery. Now, the last thing I want to talk about, he does go on to uh, describe some of the reasons perhaps why slavery was more entrenched in the southern states and not in the northern states. It's Some of it has to do with climate. Some of it has to do with the crops that are grown uh, as far as being more labor-intensive. But that's not really what I want to focus on. I want to focus on also, he says, how in the southern states, the laws have entrenched slavery so much that it's nearly impossible to break free of these laws. So over time, yeah, they brought in slaves, but then the states, they, they made laws that entrenched it and made it harder and harder and harder to break free of it. It wasn't as simple as simply emancipating all your slaves if you were a master and you wanted to. There are actually laws that prohibited you from doing it. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about that. So here's what he says. He says, Today, the legislation of the states of the South relative to slaves presents a kind of unheard of atrocity, and by itself alone it reveals some profound disturbance in the laws of humanity. It is enough to read the legislation of the states of the South to judge the desperate position of the two races that inhabit them. So he's talking about both, blacks and whites. Um, he goes on to say, I met in the South of the Union an old man who formerly had lived in an illegitimate union with one of his Negro women. He had had several children with her, who, coming into the world, became slaves of their father. Several times the latter had thought to bequeath them at least liberty, but years had gone by before he was able to overcome the obstacles raised to emancipation by the legislature. During this time, old age came and he was about to die. He then imagined his sons led from market to market and passing from paternal authority to the rod of a stranger. These horrible images threw his dying imagination into delirium. I saw him pray to the agonies of despair, and I then understood how nature knew how to avenge the wounds done to it by laws. So what's he talking about here? He doesn't go into great detail, but if you do a little bit of research on the context, uh, there were laws in place. So, for example, even if a man, a master, who had an affair with one of his slaves, the children were automatically slaves by default status. They were not free. And furthermore, for him to give them liberty, he had to pass through a lot of legislative obstacles to do that. One of the ones I'm familiar with in reading, and this was an issue that Thomas Jefferson tried to fight against, but he, he had a hard time dealing with it was that if you owed any kind of debt, let's say you had a mortgage, if you tried to set your slaves free, the government would say, no, you can't do that because they're your property. And if you're trying to escape owing money to somebody else, you're not allowed to do that. If you're going to set them free, uh, the person that you owe money to has a vested interest in that quote-unquote property right? So the government wouldn't let you do that. You would have to sell them and pay off your debt. Then 
perhaps that's one obstacle that you can eliminate as far as setting them free. So, uh, and that seems to be the case in this person, uh, this example that Tocqueville gives, is that this man wanted to set his sons free, and he was very, very concerned that they would, when he died, if he had to pay off his debts or whatever, um, they would have they would be sold to another person, and then the family would be ripped apart, if you will. Um, so these laws that were in place were so wicked uh, that it was very hard for a person to overcome them, and one person couldn't do it. You'd have to change the laws, which of course is very difficult to do that. This is not an excuse for the southern states. This is just something we need to keep in mind, because uh, when I read about Thomas Jefferson and how he had many slaves, right, he also had a lot of debt, and he inherited a lot of debt, I believe, from his parents and also slaves. He inherited those slaves. So he's responsible for them, and he can't just set them free. There were laws in place that would prevent him from doing that. I think there were laws as far as, like, they had to be able to provide for themselves. Uh, you know, they can't become a burden to society if they can't read or write or if they can't do certain things or their health care. Um, and if you owe any money, of course, you can't set them free because you're basically trying to avoid paying your debts when you have the ability to do so. So it's things, it's all that kind of stuff, man, that it, as you read about the culture that at that time and the laws, you see how difficult and horrible it was. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't fight for it and fight to set them free, but there were a lot of things to fight. It wasn't just the mores and the culture. It was the laws as well. So anyways, Tocqueville talks about how in the end, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish on this, he says that whatever the efforts of the Americans of the South to keep slavery, moreover, they will not succeed forever. Slavery squeezed into a single point of the globe, attacked by Christianity as unjust, by political economy as fatal. Slavery amid the democratic liberty and the enlightenment of our age is not an institution that can endure. It will end by the deed of the slave or by that of the master. So Tocqueville is very clear. It's going to end. It doesn't make any sense economically, and Christianity is attacking it, and now it's basically in the Christian world, if you consider at this time Europe, uh, slavery's already been abolished in most parts of, of the Christian world, except in America. So there's one last point of slavery, basically, that Tocqueville's pointing out here, and it's just not going to last forever especially with a, a culture that, that values democratic liberty. The institution of slavery will not endure. It's going to end at some point. It's going to, it's going to come to the end, uh, one way or the other. Uh, so I just found that to be very, very useful, and I think Tocqueville was quite right. I don't know if he predicted, I haven't read that part yet. He does go on in his book as far as, does he think the union's going to hold? Will the southern states and the northern states stay together or not? And he does make some interesting points that there's evidence to suggest that it's not going to hold, and one of them is, is actually this issue. But I don't know if he foresaw a massive civil war that was going to take, take place upon it. He probably thought that they would just separate um, and be different countries, uh, not that there would be a huge war over it. But still, uh, he was very prophetic in a lot of ways and saw into the future as far as he could see how things were going to play out over time. And he, and he definitely had a good understanding of American culture and the, the difficulties that we needed to still work through as a country. 
So anyways, I hope that this was useful to you. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, or other topics, you know, maybe about uh, America, American history, or slavery, or what Tocqueville had to say about that, please uh, email me at the gbgpodcast at gmail.com or go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and, and message me. Uh, look at uh, Governed by God or look for Eric Leupold, and you can send me a message there. And again, I thank you for tuning in today. And until next time, take care and God bless.